0: Welcome to The Social Science of War, a podcast for land warfare scholars and practitioners. My name is Kyle Atwell. I'm an army officer instructing international affairs at the Social Sciences Department at West Point. And today's episode is the first in a two-part series that will explore land warfare in Europe with focus on the lessons learned from Russia's war in Ukraine. The second part in this series is an extremely interesting conversation that examines the tactical and operational lessons the war in Ukraine can teach us about large-scale combat operations and this conversation releases in two weeks. Today's conversation takes a broader view by focusing on the strategic and political dynamics of the NATO alliance. Topics discussed include how the United States and its NATO allies would fight together in a great power war, a deep dive on the concept and practice of burden sharing between NATO allies, And we conclude with a discussion on lessons learned about working through coalitions from the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Ukraine. My first guest for today's conversation is Dr. Benedetta Berti. She served as the head of policy planning in the office of the Secretary General at NATO for nearly six years. Dr. Berti's research focuses on foreign policy and security, and she is widely published to include as the author of four books. She previously served as a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point and she's currently an Eisenhower Global Fellow and a Ted Senior Fellow. My second guest is Lieutenant Colonel Jordan Becker, who currently serves as an assistant professor in the Department of Social Sciences here at West Point. As an Army officer, he's served as the U.S. Joint Staff Liaison Officer to the French Joint Staff and held positions at NATO headquarters and the U.S. Mission to NATO. As a scholar, he has multiple publications on transatlantic burden-sharing and the political economy of European security. He is also currently a research fellow at the Brussels School of Governance and the École Militaire and Sciences Po in Paris. The Social Science of War podcast is brought to you by the Department of Social Sciences at West Point. Our goal is to bring together experienced soldiers and scholars to better understand land warfare, the army, and national security strategy. We hope you enjoy today's conversation with Jordan and Benedetta. Dr. Benedetta Berti, Lieutenant Colonel Jordan Becker, welcome to the Social Science of War podcast. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
2: Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, Benedetta, for being here.
0: Today, we're going to talk about coalition warfare and its role in a potential land war in Europe. This is important because a key characteristic of U.S. war planning is that we will fight alongside allies and partners. We saw this in Iraq and Afghanistan. Currently, there's a coalition of allies providing support in Ukraine, and our national defense strategy made clear that our allies are a key component of our national security in an era of rising strategic competition. Benedetta, I'd like to start with a broad question. In a potential land war in Europe, the type of war NATO has been built to prevent and then fight if deterrence fails What role are U.S. land forces anticipated to play in such a fight? And to be more specific, are U.S. army forces expected to dominate the fight in Europe? Is the U.S. anticipated to provide support like we're doing in Ukraine without playing a large direct combat role? Or should we envision combined U.S.-European units
1: on the front line? Thank you for that question. And my first reaction when I hear it is that, first of all, it's really quite a testament to the different strategic environment we're in today, the fact that we're asking that question. And I know that that's perhaps a given, but I think it's worth reflecting upon it for a second, meaning that from a NATO perspective, really the the emphasis on collective defense and on deterrence and defense specifically had withered or been weakened, I would say, for decades. And since of the end of the Cold War, you really have a series of NATO landmarks, decisions and strategic concepts, which set the direction for, for the alliance. That basically, of course, they reaffirmed that doing territorial defense is important, that deterrence and defense is what the alliance is all about. But at the same time, very practically, what they talk about, where should we invest our training, our exercising, what capabilities we should develop? Really, the focus was much more towards doing crisis management, especially a strategic distance. And of course, that was the Afghanistan experience, because for many years was NATO's largest operational deployment. The fact that we're talking very practically at the operational level, what does it take to defend Europe territorially, to me is by itself incredibly interesting, because it means that we have really entered a different stage for the alliance, for the allies, and for a broader conceptualization of threats and challenges. And this question, I think, is much more pertinent to the political debate since 2014, of course, that's with Russia's illegal and illegitimate annexation of Crimea. That's when our military planners really went back and said, well, wait a minute, we really have to boost our ability to do deterrence and defense. And we have to completely rebuild in a different way because, of course, we are not in the Cold War anymore, but rebuild our ability To think in those terms, to think in terms of territorial defense, to think in terms of defending, first of all, expanding our footprint as an alliance. And that was after 2014 with the deployment of the four multinational battle groups. But I think since February, so over the last year after the beginning of Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine, there has been a significant acceleration of that process of reboosting our ability to do deterrence and defense. So you have seen that from those four battle groups, we've gone to eight. So you see that now the entire eastern flank is reinforced. You see that there's now plans in place to bolster significantly the presence in terms of land, but also air and sea. So and we'll get to the multi-domain in a second. But there is an effort to bolster the physical presence of what I would call a transition from this tripwire approach towards a more—I hesitate to say completely forward defense—but let's say thicken the flank and really start to build up the elements of what could look like forward defense in a few steps. All of this is to say it's a roundabout way to answer your question because I rather talk about the NATO dimension of that contingency you presented. But I think if you look at all those decisions and you look at the footprint, then it's clear that we are not just thickening the Eastern flag, but also deepening and the presence of non-US allies, so European allies being deployed more, being more framework nations, taking a larger, greater role when it comes to the broader defense and deterrence posture. So that conversation, I think, As we go through through the full military adaptation of our posture, we'll look more and more different because we'll have better capabilities. We'll have European forces at higher readiness. We're implementing our plans. We're starting to forward deploy capabilities, pre-position equipment. So when I put it all together, I think we're certainly thinking about a collective defense in its true meaning. It's undeniable that when it comes to certain strategic enablers, they do come from the United States and that will continue for the near term future. But I think the direction of travel is certainly one when we can look at this contingency, the contingency of a collective defense scenario in Europe as a whole of alliance effort.
2: Yeah, I mean, I can sign up to everything that Benedetta just said. I think to me, the sort of key thing is a transition to increasing European capabilities in Europe. And what I suspect, I've been out of the headquarters for a few years now, but what I suspect is that we've made quite a bit of progress in terms of connecting threat assessment with exercise planning, with operational planning, with strategic planning, and then with defense planning. So we're moving toward resourcing
0: national forces at a level that's appropriate for what is a shared threat assessment. So are the goals with burden sharing, is this to kind of create, you know, 30 fully autonomous European and an American army? Or is it more that each country provides a specific niche capability in the context of this broader NATO military alliance? And if there was a large invasion, you would kind of have a more cohesive and integrated response?
2: It's neither of those, right? Like those are the two poles on a spectrum. And I think the sort of 30 individual autonomous armies, I think the word that I've heard most often used to describe that is bonsai armies, right? So uh, Slovenian armed forces that takes in the spectrum of capabilities is not realistic. But then at the same time, a completely integrated planning that leaves certain allies doing only niche capabilities is also probably not realistic. So NATO has this wonderful and sophisticated NATO defense planning process that exists for the purpose of coordinating national defense planning. So allies agree capability targets with one another. It's not a full integration. It's not you know a sort of total session of sovereignty over defense planning, but it is a coordination so that allies' defense planning is complementary, the capabilities are complementary, and that allies identify and address shortfalls collectively.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I think that we have to get probably to a balance between those two considerations you laid out. On the one hand, if I repeat your questions back out loud and think about 30 fully autonomous armies uh, and uh, defense sectors, I would definitely say that is not the goal. And that's one of the clear reasons for that. And that's one of the main drivers back in the days to create NATO in the first place, right? Is that we have a collection of states with different capabilities, different needs, different threat perceptions. There's a saying in Europe there are two types of countries those who are small and those who do not realize that they are small. And I think that principle to some extent can apply also to your question. In other words, one of the absolutely critical functions of NATO, of the alliance to this day, remains the fact that we are not integrating, Jordan rightly says, but more harmonizing our defense planning processes so that we have collectively. As an alliance, the ability to credibly and sustainably deter and defend, credibly and sustainably deploy to do crisis management and prevention and engage in cooperative security. So in other words, together, we can fulfill our core tasks. That requires a lot of tinkering and Jordan rightfully explained the four-year cycle of the NATO defense planning process to strike a balance between, on the one hand, the fact that there is a need, at least to some extent, to have some level of specialization. On the other hand, If you went for a full regionalization or specialization of the alliance, you would really lose the glue that binds us all together. And ultimately, also, I think you would create some real strategic dilemmas in terms of how to respond to different contingencies. So the balance is quite difficult to strike. It is between looking at the broad picture, so making sure that we collectively can fulfill all the tasks, and then assign different capability targets to different allies recognizing their distinct national security strategies, perceptions, capabilities, geographies, strategic culture, et cetera, et cetera. It's a fine balance. And I think if you tilt it too much in other direction, you risk cracking the system. The real fine line is how do we harmonize? How are we collectively prepared while recognizing that of course we have a broad geography of threats and challenges.
2: I just add that that balance is dynamic. And the fact that it's dynamic and changes over time is what makes it so important and historically remarkable that allies completely open their books to one another the way we do. And it's not necessarily a question of sort of striking the perfect balance and then holding what we got. But it's every year, every quarter, every week, getting together to talk about what capabilities we have available and achieving a dynamic balance
0: together. Jordan, that's got to be an interesting planning dilemma for our land forces in Europe. A key concept within the NATO alliance is burden sharing. So we'll pivot a little bit. You've studied alliance burden sharing extensively, both as a scholar and an army officer. Can you explain what burden sharing is as a concept and why it matters within the context of our NATO alliance?
2: Yeah. The concept is relatively simple, and you know, the sort of basic English definition of burden sharing covers it, right? It's the distribution of costs and risks associated with a set of requirements. I think that's a pretty straightforward thing. It's a little challenging in the breach, and what the requirements are is part of the discussion, and who ought to fulfill what parts of the requirements is the other one. And there's a mechanical way of doing that through the NATO defense planning process, which is itself, as Benedetta said, a political process. But then there's also the sort of above that politics of just sort of the broad discussion of burden sharing, which is challenging, but I think necessary. And I think we've mostly dealt with it in a constructive way across both sides of the Atlantic.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I would say that the question of more than what is burden sharing, what does equitable and fair burden sharing looks like? It is the political question that has been debated over the past 70 years since the beginning of the existence of NATO. I remember doing some archival work and you can find early statements by the first uh, Supreme Allied Commander Eisenhower already reporting back to Congress. and. I'm paraphrasing, but the point is, we're going to get Europeans to do more because that's the only sustainable way to have this alliance. So it's a theme that has been more than recurrent in the history of the alliance. And I think, as Jordan says, it doesn't go away. And even if I project into the future, if anything, it will become even more relevant as we face a more complex security environment, as we think more about different theaters, how they interconnect, Euro-Atlantic, Indo-Pacific, the question of having a equitable share of the burden, or I rather talk about it in terms of an equitable sharing of the common responsibility for our shared defense and security. I think that will remain a key political debate. It may evolve over the year in terms of what looks like burden sharing contribution to collective defense and what should be treated differently. I mean, the boundaries are more blurred because the world we live in is more blurred. But it will remain a key conversation. And I think, I don't know if Jordan would agree with me, that a key part of that conversation will inevitably always remain over defense spending. It will not be only about defense spending, but defense spending is the necessary, even if some would argue not sufficient, but it is the necessary step if we want to talk about a more equitable sharing of that burden.
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Benedetta defense spending is an unequivocally necessary and in most cases, insufficient condition for not just burden sharing, but for having adequate capabilities to meet a level of ambition that you establish at a national level or that's established multilaterally. But to me, there's absolutely no question that the underlying resource allocation to defense drives both the capabilities and the capacity to do the things that allies aspire to do.
0: It seems like just, you know, looking at the news, the magic number seems to be 2% defense investment rate. Does this number really matter? Where did that come from? Or is this more a political tool to increase overall investment in European militaries? Well, I mean, I don't think there's really a juxtaposition between really mattering
2: and being a political tool because political tools really matter. And so, yeah, it's a political tool and it's a political tool that really matters. The 2% guideline, it was the median defense expenditure across the Alliance in the 90s. I'm dramatically oversimplifying here, but the basic theory was that if you were underperforming on capability targets and spending below the Alliance median, then you were not bearing your fair share of the burden. You were free riding or easy riding on your allies. Meanwhile, if you were spending at or above the Alliance median defense expenditure, but weren't achieving your capabilities targets, then there was some question about whether your targets were appropriate or not. So that number came from, it was a benchmark in the 90s. And subsequent to the 90s, allies moved further and further away from that median downward. So by the time the Wales Pledge was agreed in 2014, I think at that time, it was just the US, the UK, Greece, and Estonia There may have been a fifth, but I think those were the four who were at 2%. But basically, most allies were below 2% of GDP on defense, and we had identified issues with meeting capability targets. So what the pledge was essentially asking allies to do was increase their defense spending until they met their capabilities targets. And 2% was the historical benchmark that everybody could agree to. There's an equipment expenditure component to the Wales Pledge in 2014, where allies agreed to spend 20% of their defense budgets, 20% of that 2% on equipment modernization. So essentially what we agreed to in terms of inputs at Wales was to move towards spending 0.4% of GDP on equipment.
1: I completely agree with what Jordan said. Yes, it was a political tool. And yes, because of that, it mattered. And I really think it's important because some of the discussions that we hear from the expert community on 2%, I think sometimes, not always, but sometimes miss the mark of what that was designed to do. And it was designed to mobilize NATO leaders at the highest political level, so not the defense minister, not the foreign minister, but the heads of state and government, and present to them something that they could easily digest, easily understand, easily explain to their publics and constituency, and easily measure. So the idea is, what can we do quickly to make all our different allies focus on the importance of spending more on defense after basically 30 plus years from the end of the Cold War, where the message was actually we can afford to spend less. So for decades, we, our budgets went down progressively. And the notion of the defense investment pledge was really to sound a little bit of an alarm bell and say, no, the security environment has changed. We can no longer afford the luxury and we have to start spending more on defense, even though, and I think that's important to add to the context, in many of our countries, this is a profoundly unpopular proposition. Because, of course, when you're investing more on defense, you need to balance your budget, right? So if you're spending more on defense, you need to cut on other issues, other issues that have perhaps, they provide higher types of political rewards. So it was meant to mobilize attention. It was meant to create a momentum. It was meant to try to help our leaders spend more on defense, even though in many countries that was going to open a very complex political debate because we hadn't thought in terms of prioritizing defense and security for many decades. So if you look at it through the political lens, I think it was absolutely successful. And the data shows it's roughly $350 in defense spending that we've added for European allies in Canada since 2014. So that's not negligible. And you now see the vast majority of countries as either will meet 2% by 2024 or as solid plans to reach that shortly after. Sometimes some of the technical debate as to whether that is the best measure of progress, I think I feel sometimes may miss the mark. Because if you present something that will give you the best measure of progress, that will be extremely complex. And that will be, by definition, not something that you can present at the highest political level to be endorsed. So this was a political tool. And I think it delivered. It paid off. And of course, now the challenge is, how do we build on it? It's going to be 10 years from 2014 rather soon, and we need to build on that upward trajectory. How do we make sure that we don't stop there? How do we make sure that that 2% becomes really the basis for our defense spending because the security environment really demands it? So just to explain, I think from a policy perspective, why I think that despite the fact that some say, well, it's too simplistic. Yes, and that's why it worked.
0: Jordan, you've done research on whether or not the allies have increased their defense spending since the 2014 pledge. What have you found in that research? Does that support what Benedetta says? And what explains this increase, if so?
2: Yes, absolutely. My research does support what Benedetta just said. And I think probably the most interesting thing is that the Wales Pledge itself helps explain some of that increase in defense spending. And the way we can analyze that is by looking at non NATO EU members who share the same geography, the same strategic environment, the same essentially everything as NATO allies but were not subject to the Wales Pledge and are not engaged in NATO defense planning, do not open their books up to allies. And there was a big, big, big difference. The trajectory of spending was essentially the same leading up to 2014 among NATO allies and non-NATO EU member states. And immediately after 2014, the trajectory of NATO allies abruptly changed and that of non-NATO EU member states did not. So I think there's pretty convincing evidence that the Wales Pledge itself and NATO allies deciding amongst one another to make this agreement amongst themselves, to pledge to one another, nobody dictated it to anybody. It's just allies pledging to one another to do something to benefit collective defense. There's a lot of evidence indicating that that, that, that was effective. There are, of course, a bunch of other factors that drive that, ranging from threat perception to domestic political economies. But all else equal, the Wales pledge has positively affected allied defense spending. The 2022 data is obviously still in estimate form, but the last I looked at the 2022 data, there are no allies who have not increased the share of GDP they allocate to defense and also the share that equipment represents in GDP. So basically, allies have met what they agreed to do at Wales. And now it's a question of building on that momentum and identifying what needs to be done for the next 10
0: years. Do you think that has more to do with pressure from, for example, the United States? And I know both the Obama and Trump administrations have put a big emphasis on increasing defense spending. Or is this a function of the strategic environment we find ourselves in, in that Russia seized Crimea in 2014 and this has put more impetus into the allies to realize that this is a real threat?
2: It's multi-causal. And if you model threat together with multilateral pledges with haranguing from U.S. presidents. The effect of the pledge remains consistent when you model for those other factors. And yeah, the increased threat from Russia or the increased perception of threat from Russia, of course, had an effect. But that increased threat perception from Russia affected all the EU member states. And those who were not NATO allies did not behave the same way that NATO allies did. So I think that's a good way. I mean, there's complex mathematical ways to show this. But I think just the sort of simple podcast version is that EU member states that weren't NATO allies that were facing the same threat as NATO allies were didn't make the changes that NATO allies did. They've started to now, some of them. But the evidence in shifts in defense spending was not as strong. The evidence for sort of like presidential haranguing affecting allied defense spending is pretty thin. I don't think there's much evidence supporting that.
1: I agree with what Jordan said. The reality is that it's very difficult to narrow it down to just one factor, of course. Everything is interlinked. And I do believe that, of course, the fact that defense spending burden sharing was so prominently on the political agenda, of course, also played a role. But would I say that is the driving factor behind the historic? If you take it all together, you look at defense spending, decisions on deterrence and defense, decisions on investing in the alliance, and you take all these decisions together, it's really a historic shift that hasn't occurred for many decades. I really think that is is threat-informed and driven by the fact that the security environment has deteriorated so dramatically over the last 10 years, and that has driven allies to make the difficult decision in many national contexts to bring defense and security up the list of political priorities, with all the political trade-offs and discussions that that entailed. It's not one factor, of course. When you put something in the political spotlight, it does create some pressure. But here we're talking about a broader, I think, strategic shift that really led to this big change that we're seeing over the past decade.
0: Yeah, an interesting point was that it's not just a 2% defense expenditure, but also the idea that 20% of this has to be invested into equipment. And this goes back to my first question, how do countries choose what capabilities they're going to invest in? Jordan, you have some research that suggests some factors like unemployment or domestic national economies drive defense investment rather than geo strategy. So I would wonder if we could start with your research there and then go to the broader question.
2: Thanks, Kyle. Yeah, my findings do point in that direction.
0: But I also highlight that the NDPP,
2: the NATO defense planning process, shapes how allies acquire capabilities. The extent to which they do that and the enthusiasm with which they do that is also a function of the domestic benefits that they derive. And Benedetta alluded to this earlier when she talked about sort of trade-offs, essentially between what I would call social spending and defense spending, which is true. But the trade-offs are different across countries. So in the United States, for example, we have this enormous defense industry. When we acquire defense capabilities, we're mostly acquiring them on our domestic market. In the very immediate term, that's jobs for Americans. In the medium and long term, there's technological spillover effects, there's industrial spillover effects. So there's a real incentive, right or wrong, in the U.S. economy to spend on defense, or at least there's a constituency that has a strong economic interest in spending on defense. And the same is true in other large countries with defense industries. You know, France immediately comes to mind. Germany as well. I have this very vivid memory I was seated next to a German acquisitions official at a dinner. This was in like 2012. And the speaker was Wolfgang Schäuble. And Schäuble was talking about sort of Greek profligacy and the Greek government sector being massive and Greece spending enormous amounts on defense. And this German acquisitions guy leaned over to me and said, well, thank goodness they spend so much on defense. They're they're only customers for leopard tanks right now. And we'd have to (laughs) close the assembly lines if they weren't buying them. So countries with robust defense industries have more of an economic incentive to acquire equipment and to engage in multilateral diplomacy that encourages others to buy equipment, whereas countries who are buying equipment off the shelf, so to speak, are doing that solely to to enhance their capabilities. Or you might argue to please the countries from which they're purchasing those defense articles, but they're mostly doing so, I'd argue, for strategic reasons. But My findings indicate that countries with more significant arms industries spend more on equipment. Countries, when experiencing issues with unemployment, tend to shift resources into personnel as opposed to equipment and operations. And that generally, both the EU level and the national level political economy has a significant effect on defense spending. And I suspect that there's kind of a threshold effect there that when the threat level or threat perception reaches a certain level, countries will likely focus more on sort of military strategic issues. But when the environment's considered relatively benign, then domestic political economic considerations tend to dominate.
1: Unlike Jordan haven't I haven't done research on it. So all I can say is what my reflections based on the evolving debate that I see at NATO and that to me very much aligns with what Jordan said. It is very complex to go and identify again, one factor, but there's a trade off between allocating funding for defense and allocating it to other programs. So of course, the more there's economic grievances and the more the country is is facing economic problems, the harder it is to us citizens to have more funding devoted towards defense. That equation and that discussion will be different in different countries, depending on their historical experience, or their strategic culture, on the role the armed forces play within societies, on the level of trust, legitimacy, and popularity the armed forces enjoy. So there's a lot of different factors. And when we look at 30 allies across the transatlantic space, there's very different histories, legacies, relations, and of course, those all play out. But I think overwhelmingly, if I want to zoom in on the last plus minus years, since the beginning of Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine, you can see that even though each and every country has to have that debate through the lens of their own history, strategic culture, political relationship, economic political economy, et cetera, et cetera, you can still see there is a general shared assessment that the security environment has shifted to a degree where security and defense really need to be boosted and where the discussion on defense spending becomes much more strategic, much more important. And of course. That also has a role in shaping public opinion. Public opinion shapes policies and political leadership shapes public opinion. So when we are in the middle of an all-out war in the middle of Europe, of course, public opinion support for defense spending has increased, at least that's what I've seen by looking at different polling on public opinion perceptions of defense spending. Again, that is not going to be universally the same degree of shift in every country. Countries that are closer to the front line, it's really no surprise that they feel the impact of the war very directly on their own societies. And of course, they also feel their threat perception is, of course, heightened. So in those countries, support for defense spending is incredibly high. Support for NATO is incredibly high. Countries that are a little bit more far away from the front line, so to speak, may feel that threat less acutely, but they nevertheless still share the perception that we are in a decisive moment and that defense spending matters more than it had for decades.
2: I think that's really right, Benedetta. And I think there's two really important things that arise from what you just said. One, and I think this is particularly important from the US perspective is the importance of each of our allies' individual national context in which our interlocutors are operating. And the constraints and the incentives that they face differ across countries, and there is no sort of easy one-size-fits-all solution. The other thing is that the sort of degree of effect of things like threat perception do, of course, differ across countries. But interestingly enough, some colleagues and I fielded a survey experiment in Italy earlier this year. This was In January, so prior to Russia's most recent wave of aggression in Ukraine, respondents were randomly treated with information about a Russian buildup east of Ukraine. And Italian respondents, about as distant from that front line as you can get in Europe, when treated just with information about a Russian troop buildup, shifted their attitudes toward the trade-offs that you're talking about. So when we presented them with the trade-off between social and defense spending, those respondents who were treated with information about a Russian force buildup had a much stronger positive feeling toward defense spending.
1: I think that's very interesting. And just to add another element based on what Jordan had said before on defense industry, I think that I hadn't mentioned it in my account, but of course that also plays a role. And that's one of the reasons why when you look at the European landscape and you see a relatively high degree of fragmentation of the European defense industry, that does play a role. And that's why when we're talking through NATO as allies, but also in a European Union context about how do we better do joint procurement? How do we think about a European ecosystem? Of course, with cooperation and access and from a non-EU NATO allies, that's important from a NATO perspective also, if not only for interoperability matters, but in general. But that's why when we think about how to also jumpstart and incentivize our defense industry, that's also something that creates a virtuous circle in terms of keeping up the defense spending, because it also generates domestic revenues and jobs. And of course, that helps. So we need to think about all these factors. I think it's important. Of course, we need to do it, and I say this from a NATO perspective, while maintaining a transatlantic defense industry approach. But still, there is an European angle that needs to be strengthened. Because I think it's also about spending more, but it's also for many European countries about spending better, about spending together, about getting more output for the money they invest. And all of this also requires some thinking about our industrial policies. So it's all connected.
0: Yeah, the international political economy, the idea that you can't disconnect politics and economics is really interesting in this context. Benedetta, earlier you mentioned that multi-domain operations is an important concept at NATO headquarters now. It is an important concept in the Army. Current chief of staff of the U.S. Army put out three white papers on priorities for the Army, and one of them was on multi-domain operations. So curious, when you look at that in the context of a coalition, how is multi-domain operations being approached at NATO?
1: Right. So that's a really important conversation that we're having. And it's part and parcel of that setting a new baseline for our deterrence and defense posture that involves not just looking at conventional domains land, air, and sea, but we're looking more and more on our two additional operational domains, which are cyberspace and space. And of course, through multi-domain operations, we're thinking about How do we integrate all these domains and how do we utilize them to the best to produce the strategic and operational effects that we need in different theaters and in different missions? Part of this, of course, from a NATO perspective is about how do we advance and complete our digital transformation, whether it's command and control, whether it's communications. We are undertaking a few, I would say, quite substantial reforms on those domains, and those will be very, very important if you want to think about multi-domain operations. First of all, you have to have integration, and you have to have a fully digitalized C2, and we are working on all this quite uh, diligently, I would say. Then, of course, we also have to think more about how to integrate cyber effects. That's a difficult conversation because, of course, that's really a sovereign matter. But in a world in which cyberspace is contested at all times, we need to really think across the spectrum. So cyber defense, of course, is what NATO does, but more and more about how do you contest, how do you counter, how do you respond? And so the full array of cyber effects is also the discussion about utilize, align and integrate the full array of cyber effects, I think is also very, very important. Space is, uh, for NATO, the latest domain to be declared an operational domain. If memory serves me right, it was either 2019 or 2020. So it's, of course, still a lot of ongoing work. And NATO itself doesn't have space assets, but NATO plays a key role in coordination in terms of ensuring that the troops on the ground have the right access to and can utilize mostly civilian space assets for communication, for coordination, etc., etc. So we're doing all this work work. And I think it's important that we keep it in mind because on the one hand, and we're seeing a lot of discussions about what some of the lessons that we have to learn from Russia's war in Ukraine. And I think while it is absolutely true that we have seen the old way of waging war coming back right on the field, it's also true that that's not entirely the full story. And there's a lot of innovation that we see at play in Ukraine and cyber warfare played a role, electronic warfare played a role. In other words, even though it is true that some of our assumptions about what the future of war could or will look like, we're challenged in Ukraine, not all of them. And I would urge us against relinquishing concepts like the multi-domain operation and really looking at how to integrate all effects, because that to me will still remain a key element of how you win the wars of the future.
0: We just came out of a long period of fighting alongside allies in Afghanistan and Iraq. And now we're seeing again providing support to Ukraine as a coalition. You know, between these two experiences, what lessons is the Alliance able to take forward on how to work together in a potential future larger land war in Europe? For me,
2: the kind of general lessons that my research points to are the same kinds of lessons that your recent experience as a Green Beret probably points to and my more distant experience in that area probably points to, which is that you go to war with the force that you have when the war starts. So you better invest some time and resources in training and equipping that force before there's a crisis, right? I think that's a soft truth. Forces can't be mass-produced and they can't be produced in response to a crisis. And that essentially all this sort of interoperability, political unity, flexibility, capability is you got to have that the day before the fight starts. And today is the day before the fight starts, if not the day after the fight starts.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that part of that when it comes to coalitions is, of course, the fact that the more you have worked together shoulder by shoulder, the more you've trained, the more you're familiar with each other's operational concepts and doctrines, the more you have exercised shoulder to shoulder, the more your equipment is interoperable. We all know that these are the bases. And that's one of the key functions of NATO as an organization, right? It's to have that systematic, sustained common training, common exercising, common deployment, so that if and when there is a need to be deployed together in a high-intensity warfighting situation or for crisis management purpose for that be, that is not the first time those troops on the ground have worked together. There's a lot of other lessons that you can take when it comes to working together as a coalition in common missions. I think a lot of them have actually to do to me with political will and clarity of purpose and having a clear, common strategic goal with a clear, common end game that is clearly translated at the military level in clear military objectives that are comparable across the coalition. So aligned missions, aligned objectives aligned rules of engagement as much as possible. That's something we have seen that when we are deployed in the same contingency, but we have rather different rules of engagement, that's suboptimal in terms of getting the best out of working together as a coalition. And of course, an important lesson that we've learned throughout Afghanistan through those experiences is also how deploying and working together in a coalition is by itself a way to enhance the political legitimacy and the intern domestically, so at home of the deployment, but also internationally. So that also carries an additional political and if you wish, also strategic value because it allows to increase the level of support for that particular engagement at home and also within the international community, which is, of course, important. But I think there are a lot of lessons that we are learning and we are implementing in terms of how to work better together, shoulder to shoulder in deployments based, of course, on the experience of Afghanistan.
2: There's one thing that I would add kind of from an army person in Iraq and Afghanistan perspective. And it's that I think it's intuitive for most people in your cohort of army officers. And I think in my cohort of army officers, that when you're engaged with a partner force, you always have to be thinking about how is this going to play with my partner's constituency? How is it going to play with his political constituency at the village level, at the city level, at the region level, at the tribal level? But you never lose sight of the fact that your partner has a constituency that's different from you that your partner is beholden to. And I think it's sometimes a little bit easier to forget that at the political level in an alliance like NATO because we have so much in common. But we also need to never, ever, ever lose sight of the fact that each one of our allies in NATO has a domestic constituency that they've got to deal with. And they can't always do what we think is necessarily strategically expedient in the near term or strategically wise in the long term. So kind of being aware and attuned and attentive to our allies, domestic politics and our European allies, their EU level politics is, in my view, an essential component of U.S. strategy in Europe. If we make an argument that it's somehow unstrategic for Europeans to have domestic and EU level interests, we are ourselves being unstrategic.
0: So, you know, working with coalitions, it does seem pretty clear that it increases your legitimacy, both to your domestic constituency and just in general. But it comes with some operational costs. And I'm wondering if at NATO, some of the operational inefficiencies you might get just to the nature of having to work together with people who have different caveats, or maybe there's interoperability issues. Are there lessons we've also taken from that on how to fight as a coalition?
1: I completely agree that there are also potential operational complications, and I would argue that's one of NATO's jobs, to make sure that those are as little as possible. So that's why, for example, you mentioned interoperability. That's NATO's bread and butter through our standardization work, that the whole point is of course, to aim as much as possible to have a situation where different troops from different countries are deployed on the ground and they're able to seamlessly work together. Of course, as we all know, it's easier said than done, but that's one of the key functions of NATO with its interoperability work, its standardization work, its constant political and military consultation exactly on how do we get there. And if I had a NATO compilation of all the standards, it would probably be a really, really thick book with thousands and thousands of pages. But that's really the purpose while we have that process within NATO. Then when it comes to training and exercising, that's also why we do it together because, of course, you want to train as you fight. And if you fight in coalition, you need to invest in multinational training. So we are aware of what are some of those operational, I wouldn't call shortcomings, but operational complexities that you need to deal when you are working in coalitions. And, of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. As NATO, we have a common command structure. This is fantastic if you want to work in coalitions. And that's an unparalleled advantage of working through NATO. It doesn't have to be built ad hoc. It already exists and it can be utilized whether for deterrence and defense or for crisis management. So I think when you put all these elements together, I would argue that NATO by itself and these different measures we have taken all together as the strategic objective exactly of minimizing all those potential frictions that will then exist inevitably on the ground operationally. And when it comes to different caveats, of course, that's what I mentioned before when I talk about rules of engagements. The more we are all clear about what we're there to do and who does what, the better. Uh, And that should be incredibly simply from a strategic perspective. But of course, as Jordan noted, politics also play a role and we have to navigate that. That's the only way we can make decisions as an alliance.
2: I think there's a really simple and critical insight related to everything that you just said, Benedetta, that I think is sometimes lost on us. And it's that NATO, it literally stands for North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and the organization is there to cope with some of the structural challenges that underlie the world system as it is. And so when as Americans, we feel sort of constrained or limited by NATO, I think we're kind of missing the point. The organization is there to deal with those constraints and limitations and frictions and challenges associated with the fact that we're a bunch of different countries with a bunch of different interests. So from burden sharing to interoperability, the organization itself isn't the cause of those challenges. Those challenges are endemic and the organization is the vehicle by which we address the challenges.
1: I would agree. And I would just add very shortly as a follow on to this point, even when different allies decide that the best way to achieve a particular mission is through coalitions of the willing, If those coalitions of the willing are working in a NATO framework, so with NATO allies, still you're basically deriving the benefits from all those decades of working together, having had the common work of standardization on defense planning, on exercises, on training that enables, in a way, the ability to then sometimes for whatever political or strategic reasons, decide that NATO is not your preferred vehicle through which to build a coalition, but you're still utilizing assets that have been created through decades of work at NATO. And just to close from my point, this is also something that we invest in when we work with our partners, interoperability, joint training, exercising. It's also something that we do with our partners. Not all, of course. We have NATO has 37 plus partners. So, but our closest partners and a good example would be here. Finland and Sweden, two countries that are now on track for joining the alliance as fully fledged allies after the ratification process is over. And one of the key reasons why this will be so successful, I'm very, very confident of it, is because before deciding to apply for NATO membership, Sweden and Finland were two of our closest partners, and they were already involved in the interoperability platform. They were already involved in standardization work. They were already training and exercising with NATO allies. So in other words, this seeming transition is because, again, they had been working with us for a long time.
0: Dr. Benedetta Berti, Lieutenant Colonel Jordan Becker, thank you again for sharing your expertise with the Social Science of War podcast. It's been a great conversation. Thank you, Kyle, and thank you, Benedetta. Thank you. Thank you for listening to season one, episode seven of the Social Science of War podcast, brought to you by the Social Sciences Department at West Point. We release a new episode every two weeks. Our next episode will be the second in this two part series on land warfare in Europe and focuses on the tactical and operational lessons about large scale combat operations from the Russian war in Ukraine. Future episodes will examine implications of the politicization of the army and a conversation with the chief of staff of the army about multi-domain operations. If you liked today's episode, please like and leave a positive comment on your favorite podcast platform and share the social science of war with other scholars and Army professionals. This really helps make a big difference by driving others with similar interests to the conversation. And one last note, what you heard today were the views of the participants and do not represent those of West Point, the Army, or any agency of the U.S. government. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.